love them or hate them, Stock Aitken and Waterman were an integral part of 1980s culture. The songwriting production team of Mike Stock, Matt Aitken and Pete Waterman, also known as the Hit Factory, achieved astounding success from the mid-80s to the early 90s. They wrote and recorded 18 number one singles in the UK and US, and had more than 100 top 40 entries. They also introduced dozens of new artists like Kylie Minogue and Rick Astley, while reviving the career of Donna Summer, selling around 40 million records in total. My guest on Fistful of Chords this week is Mike Stock, who's still making music three decades later. Okay, Mike, well, thanks for coming on. Um, my first question really is, when did you start writing songs and, and who were your first influences? Well, look, I, I wrote songs as a kid and I don't quite know why, other than, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of, there was no social media. I'm talking about in the 50s, uh, when I was about seven years, uh, you know, um, television started at around six o'clock in the evening. <laughs> you know, so most of the days you had to amuse yourself. Um, but And so some of the films I saw on television were about American... There's one about an American songwriter who sold a song for half a dollar or something. Uh, a very famous song, went on to make millions. That fascinated me. So I don't know really. So I heard on the radio... My family had classical music in the background. My brother played for the German National Opera for all his life. Um, he died recently. And the... Um, you know, and my mum and dad were both quite musical. My sister was a trained musician. I'm not trained, but there was a piano in the house, and so I just got on to music very early, very early. Taught myself what I thought I needed to know. Never, never, never bothered trying to go and get training. Partly because I thought I'm doing it all right without the training. And whenever I played with my brother, who was classically trained, <laughs> it became quite wooden. You're playing pop. I want to play Beatles songs with him, and he was trying to do that on the viola or violins, and he struggled. Is it because you see you can't write down pop music the way you can classical music? Classical music is written for every demi, semi, hemi, quaver, every dot, every dash, and that's what you play. Pop music has got a portion of it that's feel, a swing. If there's a flavour of swing, you don't, you can't write swing into scores, not very easily. Um, so I think uh, I never bothered to learn I don't read music um, but my very earliest upbringing I think that's what interested me and I got into writing so earliest influences were people like um, you know Rodgers and Hammerstein Irving Berlin I just loved all their songs and then the Beatles and so you were quite a prolific performer at the start of your career what made you give that up to become a songwriting producer well, the thing was, I think I was quite good at it. Um, I had I had two bands. I had one band, but with two different names. Uh, so so we could be playing in the Inn on the Park or the Hilton for 500 quid a night. And round the corner the next night, we'd be playing in a local pub for 60 quid between us. And um, so I had to have a different name. <laughs> Otherwise, the, the, the hotel managers wouldn't want to pay 500 quid. We saw you around the corner for 50 quid. What's going on? <laughs> so, you know, we wore dicky bows and suits for the hotels and jeans and T-shirts for the pubs and clubs. And uh, that, I earned my living. So I was able to play to sort of high-class venues, playing dinner music and disco, and then in pubs, a lot of rock, pop rock, 
Um, some of my songs were like that, really. Um, so, and we were doing okay as a band. You know, we were working every night of the week, plus twice on Sundays. And I realised, I think I realised, I could carry on doing that till I was 70, which I'm now nearly 70. <laughs> um, and there were band leaders on the road who were still doing it. It was uh, Joe Loss, for example, and other, Ray McVeigh. Uh, they were all getting on a bit and they'd been doing it all their lives and I just didn't want to get stuck in that rut. So, I, I mean, I took a risk. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1983, I said to the band, I'm not doing any more gigs. Um, I'm going off into my studio, hopefully to go into production and, and into the record business rather than the band business. So that's when that happened. And Matt Aiken was in this band with you, wasn't he? He came into my band... Um, probably in around 1982 or something, um, I, because I'd sacked, I'd, I sacked about eight guitarists over the years because they were either drunk on stage and fell over or later turning up, never wanted to rehearse, one thing or another. So, so Matt was recommended to me uh, by one of the girl singers, um, been on cruise ships, and Matt has a, is a brilliant guitarist. Matt has a real, real range of experience, like I, I was getting anyway, uh, so he could play, you know, punk to funky, <laughs> uh, reggae, whatever you want. And so you guys were playing in your basement, I think, is that right? Well, we had, a, a, studio, I had a basement sorry, under yeah. my house. Yeah, the studio. We built the studio under the, under the house. I was fortunate enough, I mean, I bought it for this reason. It was on the Thames floodplain down in uh, Abbey Wood, um, where all houses since about the 19, uh, beginning of the... 1970s I think had to be built at least six feet above the ground before the Thames barrier and so when I saw the place I thought oh blimey that looks like it could be a studio there so we bought the house just so I could have that space underneath. And um, how did you get together with Pete Waterman after this point? Well I'd got I'd got rid I, I got to meet Pete in about 1980 because I'd been a songwriter uh, I did broadcast for the BBC uh, quite a few times, went up to Maida Vale, their studios there, and recorded my band singing what they would record, call now non-needle time because there was an arrangement with the Musicians' Union that they wouldn't just play records, you'd employ some musicians and play some live music. So I recorded a bunch of songs, including my own material, for the BBC. So I was a writer and doing OK, getting a bit of a reputation, but one of my songs... Pete Waterman had picked up to produce, but he he was managing the producer of Nick Kershaw and Musical Youth, who was called Peter Collins. And between them, Pete Collins and Pete Waterman produced a song I'd written. So that's how I knew of Pete. That was around 1980. But at the end of 1983, beginning of 1984, when I said, we're quitting all this and I'm going into music production, he was about the first person I called. And I set up a meeting with him and with two others on January the uh, 15th. I think it was that 15th or 14th. And went off to London <laughs> to meet uh, the guy from Rack and the guy from Red Bus. The guy from Rack had a hangover and was being sick in the corridor. <laughs> the, guy, the guy from Red Bus wasn't there. Turned up at Pete's place. He wasn't there either. Even I've made appointments. Uh, but the girl said, Pete's coming back. He's just gone off to the airport to pick somebody up. So Matt and I went off, Matt came in, we went off to cup, get a cup of tea and saw Pete around lunch after lunch. And he got it immediately. 
he got what I was trying to do. We'd invented a band. I found two girls who followed my band in the East End who were going to prepare to dress up crazily <laughs> and they'd front the band and we'd be a kind of female Frankie Goes to Hollywood because it was 84 when the Frankies were doing so well. And I said to Pete, there's no actual band, Pete, but you know what I mean? And the guy from Racket said when he'd recovered the earlier meeting, yeah, when, when can I go and see the band then? So well, they're not actually a band. I've invented them. They'd, no, but I need to see the band. You know, they just didn't understand what I was getting at. And, and in any case, you know, go back over the history of pop music and all bands are created, really. The Beatles were manufactured, you know. Um, but Pete Waterman understood and we went in the studio with him about a month later in the marquee made a record, had a bit of a hit, made another record, had a bigger hit, made another record, had a top five, made another record, had a number one. So that formed the relationship. So what did the three of you bring to the partnership separately? Well, I suppose, I mean, I think Peter, Pete was really our, our business contact. You know, Matt and I were musicians and I primarily wanted to be a musician writer, songwriter. Um, and so, in essence, um, Matt and I could do all the work in the studio. But what I realised, I had a business brain, I suppose, when I was younger as well, as being, you know, a flossy-haired songwriter. Uh, you know, you've saw out writing the song, someone's got to go and sell them and get a deal on them and get them, get them out there. And Pete was very good at that. He, 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 you know, people called him a bit of a motor mouth. But you gave him... We shook hands on a deal that we split everything. And so it was in his interest as much as ours to go out in into the music business and shout about us, you know, and tell everybody it's a smash. Um, and people bought into that, you know. So we needed Pete to do that. But Matt and, Matt and me were, you know, in the studio. We were just... Uh, self-contained really. So I mean you had quite a, a very interesting business model, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in that you own, the, you, so you own the means of production, you don't have outside musicians, you use electronic, you use the latest high-tech studio equipment um, and, and you didn't really want anything to sound like a recognisable instrument I think. Well back then um, when we were start, the first records we were having hits with, this is another business decision we took the records were really what they used to call uh, boys town or high energy and it was by and large beneath the dignity of record industry executives to like that kind of stuff and also the BBC to want to play it they didn't like that kind of stuff and so we we realized that most of the records that were having success in that genre were they were all right in their productions, but they, the songs were weak. So we thought we could marry some of our song sensibilities with that kind of a record. Now, those kind of records back then were electronic. You didn't use guitars uh, and you didn't really use pianos or, you know, you used... It was electro synths. And therein lies a, 
a different story. Really. It was very difficult to get your synthesizers to line up with your drum machines and line up with your because there were you know we weren't on MIDI. Do you know what MIDI is? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, MIDI, uh, we were doing controlled voltages and gates to trigger things off. Um, sorry, that's the mic bashed, and that that would be um, and it was a nightmare getting things to sync up. But that was the benefit of those kind of records was you're not supposed to sound human you were kind of sounding a bit mechanical um but we overlaid onto that um songs as hazel dean's whatever i do for example top five for us over here massive hit other parts of the world we never attempted to make the drum machine sound like it was played by a human being you'd need six legs to play that many bass drums so we just said we're not trying to fool anybody this is actually a drum computer look no human can do it, and we used it for its effect. It's going back to the, the business model of you know you are, of owning the studio and you writing the songs. You've cut out a lot of um, other people, really. You don't have to have a lot of session musicians. Yeah, look, it's a part of me. I think it really is. Um, I still do that. Um, I've got James here, my son, working with me, but we do nearly absolutely everything the only time we'd ever get another musician is if we wanted a saxophone or, or something we couldn't handle but uh, and we're still doing i mean i was out this morning painting my shed and i cut the grass and we do this that and the other we make videos james we edit and direct our own videos and produce them um you know uh because we haven't got the endless money supply that the majors have or had and you know and actually, I like doing it. I, li I like the creativity in all the areas. You know, it's, it it stimulates you. So your your first um, number one was "You Spin Me Round," which was recently chosen. I don't know if you saw this. Was recently chosen as number five in the best UK number ones of all time in the Guardian. Did you see that? Oh, I didn't see it. So it's in the Guardian. Therefore, it must be really true. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, I'd, I. I don't know why. I can see why. I can see why because in its day it was a bit shocking, a bit left field. I mean, it's a song that actually stands up today if you hear it. I think the record, does, the recording does. Yeah, I think because it was all, all pumping and grinding, and it was massively sequenced and uh, and all the gimmicks and effects that we had at our disposal, and we made it in 1984. Actually, at the end of 1984. Um, when a lot of people have said to me, oh, it's because you had the Lin 9000. Lin 9000 was an advanced drum machine, certainly an advance on the Lin 1 or the Lin 2, uh, because you could sequence up your keyboards and stuff. But we didn't have um, a Lin 9000 in 84. So we were struggling again. So we were able to make a record that I don't think many people could have made. Because Matt and I, we worked our way round the issues, the technical issues, and we came up with some ingenious ways uh, to get around all that. And so a lot of other people were struggling. I mean, you had Trevor Horn doing um, the Frankies, but when you listen to that, they're not really techno in the way that we were doing it, high energy techno, they were quite laid back. And Trevor would take six months to get a snare drum sounding right, you know, uh, we didn't have the time for that. Um, so we were just bashing them out. And it's good to know that Spin Me Round still stands up, I think. It's like one of those things, it knocks on the door and you can't turn your back on it, you know, because it's in your face. 
So in the, in those uh, some of those earlier artists, you had people like Divine, yeah, Dead or Alive. Um, I mean, though you were at the forefront actually of making gay culture mainstream. Was that just a sort of a commercial opportunity, or you weren't trying to make a point? In, no, well, we weren't making a point, but we the. If it was a point, it was a different point than the one that would seem obvious because, you see, radio would love to play back then in 84, 85. I don't know, let's just think, who would it be? Brian Adams, Duran Duran, oh, God, think of a few names. But they're really, you know, posh boys' music um, and uh, uh, didn't have earthy roots in it. And the... Uh, industry itself was sniffy about that kind of stuff and so you would never hear our songs on the radio you never heard you you heard them on the chart rundown when they had no chance but to play them eventually and grudgingly a few crept in there was a bit more support and so and there's a reason for this it's quite profound if you are um, a new outfit starting out, you want to hit, like, say, we're dead or alive. Well, they'd already had it, to be honest, but, say, Divine or Hazel Dean, whatever. You, 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 you're not going to get a break at radio. And how are you going to get yourself a hit? You go straight to the clubs. You go straight where people are, where a DJ can't put on a record just because he's been paid to put it on by the pluggers and the people at the Radio 1 promoters and producers who are all on the take playing what they want to play because they've been given the holidays in Spain. No, you're on the dance floor and your DJ, if he clears that dance floor, he's got, he's got the sack. So it's the most honest way of getting a response and a reaction from people. If they like it, the DJs love it, the crowd love it, the club loves it and then you know actually you can sell that. And, you can, and that's where we broke our records, on the club floor, where you weren't battering your head against the pre, uh, the prejudicial ideas of the radio uh, and the music industry, and also the backhanding um, dealings, you know, you couldn't get your record on radio, you had to be in their club for that, and that means you had to pay for something somewhere along the line. I mean, we would have done if they'd have asked us, but... <laughs> After huge hits with Divine, Hazel Dean and Dead or Alive, Stockhaken and Waterman moved into the music stratosphere with the success of Kylie Minogue, Jason Donovan, Rick Astley and others, despite the opposition of the music press and industry bigwigs. Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan, who were soap stars, you made them into huge international pop stars. Um, what made you think you could turn them into pop stars? Well, OK, so Kylie... It's a good question because everyone, I think, gets this slightly wrong. Kylie, and thereby uh, extension, Jason, were not famous pop uh, soap stars when we worked with them. Uh, Neighbours uh, was something in the order of 18 months ahead of the UK in its uh, run. And when we were asked to work with Kylie... Neighbours was only on the BBC just before the one o'clock lunchtime news on a Wednesday. That's all it was. It hadn't crossed over. It was once a week at 12.30 at lunchtime. Um, it later moved to the evening slot, but by that time we'd had all the recordings done and Kylie had left the show to do the promoting. But there were still 18 months of neighbours so we were getting a double whammy of promotion with her in it and 
but over here out on the road selling the records. So that worked brilliantly for us. But, but nonetheless, we had to have something to sell. And in the first instance, uh, we hadn't really... We hadn't planned for Kylie. I didn't know she was turning up. Pete had forgotten to tell us he was in Manchester. I mean, I've told the story enough times, but Matt and I had to get our act together very, very quickly and bring all our years of experience. And we knocked out a song um, uh, which has a kind of unique chord structure and a pretty... Uh, o o it's an odd format, really. But this it is really I Should worked. Be So Lucky. Yeah, yeah. I Should Be So Lucky. It, it, it was difficult to... Um, sit there and I didn't I, I normally like to know a bit more about the artist and get to know of them and all I knew about her was which I was being told she was in a successful soap in Australia they just won a they've got a, an award out there I forgot what it's called now Hoagie Logie Logie it's called a Logie award like a TV award um, and she was a pretty girl uh, she could sing and she could dance and I thought, bloody hell, she's lucky. She's got everything going. Why, do, why does she want to make records? I thought. And then I remember a conversation with my mum years and years before. Where she said, well, you can't have everything in life, you know. It's a bit like she said, if you're, if you're lucky at cards, you won't be lucky in love. You know, there's, a, there's an old phrase, lucky at cards, unlucky in love. Um, and I thought, well, perhaps she's not lucky in love. Perhaps she's got everything else in her life. It's going brilliantly, storming along, touring the world, but but uh, she just wants, there's no love. And that's what the song is, really. I should be so lucky in love. It's not a celebration, it's regret that she isn't. You know, it's all in her imagination that she's found the perfect guy and all that. I mean, it was just the thought I had at the time, and uh, but then we had to sort of write the lyric, get her in, get her out and on the plane back to Australia, which we, we did, we did in, in you know... The whole process, that's writing and recording, took about three hours. So the writing took about 40 minutes. Um, and so, I mean, you worked at such a pace. You had so many um, people you were working with. How important was it to have sort of young, fairly malleable people to work with? Well, I, 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 did, I did used to like working with unknowns better than, say, with when Cliff Richard came in, for example. I felt a bit of pressure on that. I've got to write something that kind of suits Cliff and everyone knows what Cliff is and what he sounds like. But with people like Mel and Kim, they were a blank canvas. So in a way, I prefer a blank canvas because you can write the script then and then follow your own train of thought. Same with Kylie, I suppose. And you said, uh, you said earlier on you like to have people in so you can meet them beforehand. Do you, mm. How difficult is it to try and get into someone's head or um, yeah, their personality? It's difficult to do it, and and I don't like, and I know I've said it before, uh, and I think Kylie doesn't particularly like the idea that I kind of thought I was summing up her life in a song, and with Mel and Kim as well. But this is only acting; you're only singing a song. You you know, it's not actually supposed to be you. But never going to give you up for Rick Astley was it was because he told me his girlfriend he met when he was five. And they were they went to school together to primary school, and then went to the same junior school, and were going out. and And by that time, you know, they were te eighteen or whatever. And um, and my th my thought on that one was simply that you know, well, we're no strangers to each other, and love. But up until now, it's been a sort of a platonic thing. We're now moving it on to, more, you know, that's the what the song's about really. Um, but I, I liked, I got to know Mel and Kim a bit because we sat in a room with them. Rick sat in a room with us as well. He sat in the room in our studios there for about a year. 
before we made the record. Uh, and he was making tea and getting sandwiches. And he doesn't particularly like to be known as a tea boy either. I can understand all of that. But the truth was, we were forming our view of him and he was forming his view of us. And that was a, a learning process. The end of which was never going to give you up. Um, and so you couldn't look back and say, well, that any of that was a mistake. You know, that was it worked out well. So in what capacity was he with you? I mean, if he, if he wasn't um, a singer at the time, did you just sort of discover that he had an amazing voice? Or? No, no he had, we knew he had a voice. Uh, he was in a band that Waterman had seen up in Manchester, Warrington. Uh, but the band, Pete, didn't think were very good, but he liked Rick's voice. And all, all we did, and we did it with a few people like Sonia and others. Pete said, well, come down to the studio. And the point was, we'll try when we've got the time, because you know, in that period we're working probably with six different acts. You've got Banana Armour waiting over there, Melonkin waiting over there, Donna Summer waiting over there, whatever. And Rick, so you know, you just stick, hang around. We haven't got your record deal. We haven't got any records to play anybody. But eventually, when we did set, and we set Rick, I set, got Rick behind the mic, um, and we were doing somebody. Had, suggested we do a Motown cover, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, which he sang really, really well. But I was saying to Pete and Matt, we've got to do a song for him because this guy's got a brilliant voice. We've got to write one specially for him. Um, and only after we did that, Never Gonna Give You Up, were we able to take that recording to RCA uh, and kind of get them interested in a deal, and signing him up to get a release date and all of that. And that was probably a good six months after we'd finished the record, because we made that record and didn't know we had a hit. Well, you don't necessarily know. You're working, you're deep in it. It took a long time to formulate that particular song, a lot involved, involved in honing it down and all the things we had to do. Stayed in the can um, until somebody got it out and played it, and we all heard it by surprise, if you like. And both me, Matt and Pete, we were, that's good. Why have we got this record out? Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then they sort of number one all over the world in, in an instant. And uh, we had it. We didn't know we had it. <laughs> OK, so at the same time, you're also working with established, some established stars, like you mentioned Banana Armour and um, Donna Summer. How, how different was that? I, Banana Armour, oh, partly, they, they were awkward to work with. Uh, I always found, because I think you might call them, uh, you wouldn't call them, oh, God, you know, they weren't Paver they weren't the female equivalent of Pavarotti. They weren't brilliant vocalists, but they had a sort of a the common touch. They Pete used to refer to them as checkout girls from Tesco's. You know, they were attractive girls, good looking and all that. But no one would have you you wouldn't have used them as backing vocalists. You know, is so. But they had a unique sound. They mainly sang in unison. So there's a, quite a lot of constraints involved in writing a song for Banana Rama. Don't do anything too testing. Put it all in a similar register so they don't have to go into their head voice. They can sing it all out of their chest. Um, and so, you know, those are technical points. Uh, someone like Donna Summer could sing you the, the phone directory, you know, and she'd be brilliant. Um, and and she was an older woman. But, but for for her, we didn't really... We were launching a new career for her. She, her career had broken down from the sort of... Uh, Giorgio Moroder stuff that she was famous for, I Feel Love and those sorts of things. Quite a lot of sexual moaning on tape, which she was quite embarrassed about. 
um, didn't want her daughter to hear it and all that. Um, and I can understand that. Uh, and so we were, and she, she made some comment that the press had taken out of context to do with AIDS being a punishment from God. Um, and so when, they, when she came to us, we were sort of rebuilding a bit of her image. Um, uh, we, we all love Donna, and she is just a great vocalist, or she was. Uh, sadly, you know, she died. And and so, you know, you've got... That's the two extremes, really. You've got Banana Armour on one side, you've got Donna. Difficult for different reasons. I mean, I wanted to write a great tune for Donna, and I thought I'd sing her my idea, first song, this time I know it's for real. And she blasted it back at me with so many <laughs> subtle variations on it. You know, it was just a joy to, to be there. Uh, with Banana Armour, it was a struggle to get a note out, you know that, and they were embarrassed by it all, and I was embarrassed by it all because you sing, you sing something quite lovey-dovey to them, you know. Last night I was dreaming I was locked in a prison cell. When I woke up, I was screaming, calling out your name, you know, and you, and they're just sniggering at you. It's not a good, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> and uh, you know, Paul Gamacini once said, "Is writing a song is one of the two most intimate." and personal things you can ever do with anybody else. Uh, so Matt and I were used to making fools of ourselves in front of each other, you know, when you're singing tunes and stuff. But in front of Banana Armour, it became more awkward. Um, but Donna, and I always found this as well, well like, similarly with Paul McCartney, Cliff Richard and um, Donna, the best and most talented of the singers you work with, the easiest it, the easier it became. Yes. They were just giving you feedback, and you were feeding off each other, um, and it was it was never a struggle. I did I did the Hillsborough record of Ferry Cross the Mersey right. yep. uh, with McCartney um, behind the mic, and he said to me, "Mike, how do you want me to sing it?" And I, this is Paul McCartney asking me how he wants you. <laughs> so I said, "Well, I'd like you to do it like you sang Fool on the Hill, like a bit wistfully," and he was there instantly, you know, and in one take, it's done. Uh, they called him the man of a thousand voices, and similarly with with, with Sir Cliff, you know, it was <laughs> uh, just a joy. And uh, and the, the reason for that is some of the lesser singers, and I'm not really referring to Banana Rama here at all, but others who I won't mention, were very um, got worked up because they were they were embarrassed and ashamed for themselves, and would get bad tempered and shout and scream because they knew they weren't doing it very well. Uh, and that's that's I've been doing it for years now so many bloody years I never put a singer through the mill there was a point years ago when I did but th that just ends in tears now I say fine just do another one fine do another one and then when they've gone I sift through it all and find the best bits and work it all out afterwards it's better than dragging them through it because they lose heart um, anyway, and that's all a part of the art of making a record, really. You've got to get the artists in and get them out quickly. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, you were, you were working at such a pace at that time, and at so many, you know, you'd have a number one replacing another number one. Were you feeling at the time, you know, we really need to make Hey While the Sun Shines? Were you thinking this will go on forever, or were you thinking, well, in, we might have two years of this and then it'll be over? A lot of people would have concluded that we couldn't keep it up. Uh, for very much longer. We, we, we were on the chart uh, in some position or other for three and a half years, something like that, without a break. I would have carried on. I mean, it sounds a bit odd now. I didn't change. 
I've always written songs. I would always continue to write songs. The industry changed. They shut the door on us. Thanks very much to Mike for taking part in this edition of Fistful of Chords and for his refreshing honesty throughout. Part two is even more revelatory, with Mike's brutal account of his battles with the chart compilers and major record companies who he says joined forces to deliberately destroy Stock Aiken and Waterman. Thanks also to James Stock for engineering, Tim Briceno for his music and Mark Taplin for his podcast artwork. <laughs>